So we are going to be, once again, uh, for the last time, we are going to be in the book of Job this morning. Uh, We're going to bounce around in several different scriptures uh, from Job 38 through 42, uh, but our main passage, kind of like we had the last several weeks, uh, our main passage is going to be Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, and then verses 12 through 17. If you brought your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and get that out uh, and mark that scripture. We'll be there shortly. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's okay. The scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. So uh, we are, as I said, ending our series in the book of Job, uh, coming to the final chapter, the final speech, uh, the last word uh, on the book from God himself when God finally responds to Job, not in the way Job was hoping, nor I believe in the way Job was expecting, but responds with a sense of sovereignty and majesty and glory that is beyond anything Job expected. It's a mysterious time when God comes, and it's full of, of mystery, the speech that he has. I would encourage you, uh, if you, if you have a normal prayer time where you read the Bible throughout the week, read chapters 38 through 42. I'd encourage you to read the whole book, actually, but especially in, in reflection of, of today, uh, read God's speech in chapters 38 through 42. Um, if you don't have a, a normal quiet time, it would be a good place to start uh, because it is a reflection of, of God over, again, how big he is how he is in control, even when we don't understand or get why. So I encourage you to view God's sovereignty through those eyes. Speaking of of mystery and big ideas, um, Corbin, our five-year-old, we have a lot of of deep conversations. Um, And and those of you who who have children, you know that the premier time for conversations with your children is not when you're wanting to have a conversation with them, well, not when you're asking them questions about how was Sunday school or how was school or how did this go or how did that go and you want to get things out of them. Or if you know that they've learned something and you want them to show someone else or the grandparents and you want to ask them, hey, tell us this. And, you know, they just kind of get quiet. You know that the premier time isn't when you want it, but the premier time for kids to ask the really deep, profound questions that would take months to answer. Y'all know when that time is, right? Everybody say it with me. One, two, three. Bedtime. Yes, exactly. That is the time where they ask the best questions. And I can't quite figure out if it's because Corbin is smooth and he's able to make me take longer in putting him to bed uh, because he knows uh, that I will will try to answer the question and will be there for a while. Or if he really is just that curious, it's probably a marriage of the two somewhere. Uh, He is smooth and he is curious. But he asked those deep questions. Questions. I don't know how many times we've had questions when I've gone in there and I said, okay, Corbin, this is the last time I'm coming in here. And we end up having questions about death, about love, about all the things that little kids ask about, about marriage and what is that, you know, what, how's that going to work for me later on? And he's not interested in that at all right now, which I'm praise the Lord. You know, I hope that stays for another 10 or 15 years. Um, and, 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 and everything else that goes on in the world, questions about God and where God is and heaven and what's that going to be like and those who have passed on and, and where are they and what's going on there and just all of those big questions. And I think, I, I would think if I were to like talk about it when he's not in the room or when I'm not trying to answer his question, that I know the answers to those questions. That I have a handle on what those things are. But you probably heard the cliche that goes something like, if you want to really know that you know something, try explaining it to a five-year-old. Try explaining it to 
a child in terms that children can understand. I learned that this week helping out with Vacation Bible School. During our CDO, I learned it you know, once, a, once a month or once every six weeks when I do chapel in there. And it's when you really want to know if you learned something, try teaching it. And then try teaching it to children. Because you have to put it in very concrete, explicit terms in order to be able to communicate what you believe is reality. So a lot of those things I have difficulty explaining on Corbin's level. And then I realize I have difficulty explaining a lot of these things on any level. Trying to understand them. Trying to get my mind all the way around them. And the conversation usually comes to an end one of two reasons. A, I'm finally to the point, okay Corbin, quit stalling. It's time to go to bed. This is the last time, I promise. Not coming back in five minutes like I did the last time I said that. This is the last time. Or B, finally come to the conclusion. We're not going to find an answer to this question right now. You're just, and I'll say something along the lines of Corbin... You're just going to have to trust me. You know, more often than not, that actually works for him. He actually does trust. Not in the sense that he doesn't want to ask that question again later, or he won't ask it again the next day, but at least it puts his mind at ease. It's not as if he's having these big existential questions that he keeps wondering about long after he's asked me where he can't sleep at night or anything like that, but he trusts me, and a lot of times that is good enough. He who trusts his father can sleep at night. And the same can be said for us adults. If we can rest in trust of God, then it allows us to sleep at night. allows us to sleep in the midst of questions. You know, another thing Corbin loves, and I've shared this with you guys before, is superheroes. Everybody loves superheroes. I talk about those a lot because he loves those things. But all superheroes, or, or most superheroes, I should say. I won't say all. Most superheroes are some sort of magnified human. Where their powers are magnified human powers. Captain America being the premier example. But even Batman. Batman really doesn't have any superpowers. I don't want to get into any conversation with any comic book fans. Um, Batman's actually my favorite of the heroes. But uh, he doesn't have any technical superpowers. Instead, he has, he's the best detective in the entire world. Plus, he has all of the resources of Bruce uh, Wayne's fortunes. And so those are able to help him accomplish those things. He has magnified human resources, magnified human gifts. Superman is, even though he's an alien, is kind of the same way. He has magnified things that we would think we would want if we had superpowers, like speed, like the ability to fly, like super strength and heat vision. These are things that we would think of, which is obvious because Superman is out of the imagination of a human being, just like every other superhero that is ever depicted in any superhero literature anywhere. And a lot of times when we think about superheroes, and I've done this before in sermons, we use those as kind of a metaphor to understand God. A lot of people think that Superman was written in as kind of a metaphor of Jesus Christ being the Superman. And while those metaphors are helpful and why it is beautiful to see God in that sort of way sometimes, it also falls short of the reality that God is wholly different. That he is not magnified humanity. That he is something we are created in his image, yes, but he is of another realm. He is, he is not necessarily like us. There is part of him that is like us in his son Jesus, but there is part of him that is beyond us as well. He is wholly different. There are truths about God that we will never wrap our minds all the way around. And so coming to that conclusion in the book of Job, which is talking about 
teaching things and thinking you know them. The book of Job has shown me that perhaps there's more mystery there than I began to, I came to it beginning with the series. But what I want you to take away from the entire series, really, is that when we know who God is, we can trust what God does, even when we don't understand. There is a sense of redundancy in this sermon from the last I understand that, but maybe God is really trying to get this through my head, and maybe he's doing the same for you as well. When we know who God is, we can trust what God does, even when we don't understand. As we opened the pages to the book of Job, we talked about how God is good, how that was an assumption of the author of Job, probably an assumption of Job, definitely an assumption of his friends. This is something we come to the book with. We question it in our modern sensibilities, but God is good and we know God is good. We can trust whatever happens from that point forward. We looked at Job's friends and how they responded. Early in the story, they respond in an appropriate fashion. They come and they are with Job silently, mourning with him for seven days, waiting for him to speak. And we look at that sort of reaction by Job's friends and we realize that this is the reaction that we all ought to have. To just go and be with, not with an explanation necessarily, if that one is needed, then one should be given. But a lot of times just to go and silently sit and be with the hurting. And then they respond in the wrong way for much of the rest of the book, trying to explain Job's pain, that he is doing this, he is receiving this pain because it is judgment from God because Job has sinned in some way, even though we learned from the very beginning of the book that Job is righteous according to God's standards. Job, even though he is righteous at the beginning of the book, though, he seems to question God. Not seems to, he does. Question the authority of God. Question the decision making of God. And demands an answer from God. We were there just a couple of weeks ago. Where Job, uh, again in my mind, I see him shaking his fist heavenward as he says to God, I have written my plea. I have shown why I'm innocent. All of these people are saying I am wrong. I need you to come to my defense. God, I'm asking and I'm waiting. I sign it. Answer me. And he waits for God's response. Job spends so much time defending himself that he doubts, he seems to doubt the sovereignty of God. He is more worried about defending himself than he is defending God. And we can see that in the way that he speaks. And the need for us to stop defending ourselves, especially through our understanding on this side of the testimony of Jesus, who defends us against everything. That we can rest in his defense and stop defending ourselves. And then finally, last week, we looked at the mysterious Elihu, the fourth individual who comes forward to speak to Job. And God uses this imperfect individual to communicate that God can use suffering, even if it's outside of the way that we can understand. That while our suffering might be mysterious, it is not pointless. God can work through those things for our ultimate good. And then we see again in chapters 38 through 42, God finally taking the stage. God's speech in response to Job, really it's through 41 is God's speech. 42 is kind of the closing of the book. And a couple, last week I mentioned in the first service, I didn't mention in here because we were running out of time, but you get the idea at the end of Elihu's speech in chapter 37 that there is literally a storm brewing. Again, go back and and read the entire book. I encourage you to do that. Elihu begins to use kind of storm imagery. He talks about lightning crashing and God tells the lightning where to go. 
It seems to pick up this sort of speed, almost this anticipation that you know someone is next. And when you really think about it, Job's friends have said, we're not going to talk anymore because Job's not listening to us. Job has said, God, I have written my defense. Answer me. Elihu is now speaking. You know who's coming next. There's nobody else left to talk except for God. And so again, I see through what I, what I read in the passage, and this isn't like literally explained, so you take it for what you will, but I see in all the storm imagery, I see a storm literally brewing around them. And some of you hate storms, right? Some of you at the mere sound of thunder, you'll go get in a safe room or a cellar, or you'll, you'll pull out the phone so you can track and see where stuff is going, you can know what's going on, and you, you sit in fear of that, I understand that. But some of you love storms. You find them intriguing. You want to go outside and, and watch the lightning. You're, maybe some of you have even signed up for like the storm chaser stuff where you go and you report on what's going on in this area. Either way, it brings anticipation. Whether it is a negative sense of anticipation, a horror, or whether it's a positive sense of anticipation with excitement, it brings anticipation. The same sense of anticipation is building in the book of Job. Or maybe there's thunder in the distance and then it begins to get closer and you see flashes of lightning on the horizon. Maybe there's a a sprinkle beginning to fall on Job, his friends, Elihu, as they await for God's response. And then in chapter 38, God shows up and it says, according to depending upon which translation you're reading in my English Standard Version, it says that God speaks out of the whirlwind. Some of you, I think the King James says, speaks out of the tempest. Some of you might say God speaks out of the storm. And so you get this idea that that with this physical manifestation of this, this, this storm, God speaks forth from it to answer Job. And in Job chapter 38, verses 1 through 4, God responds very forcefully to Job's demand for an answer. He says these words. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. So God shows up responding to Job's Questioning, responding to Job, demanding for an answer, and he lays out just how little Job actually understands. Who is this, God says, that darkens my counsel with his words? Who are you anyway, Job? Where were you when the foundations of the earth were laid? And God expounds very much upon that in chapter 38 talking about all of the different facets of creation that God has the snow built up in storehouses, uh, that he tells the rain where to go, that he sets the limits for the sea. You get this picture of the tides and when the tide comes in, that God is the one that sets the limits for the tide and says, this you will go and no further. God is the one who put the stars where they are, who, who sees the dawn to its place, who, has the, who knows the source of the light and the dark. God is the one who has all of this figured out. And he asks a series, I think like 70 questions in this entire passage, where he turns to Job and he says, were you there for this? Do you understand this? Can you explain this, Job? Things that God orchestrates and God understands. And in verse 39, or chapter 39, God picks on individual animals. He talks about the ostrich. He talks about the hawk. 
He talks about several different other animals throughout that passage and asks Job questions about them, questions that Job certainly has no idea of, pointing to God's big creation and then specifically to creations, to literal, actual creations. God is asking Job, do you know how all of this works? Are you really able to give me counsel when you can't even answer these simple questions? And in chapter 40, God rests the first part of his case and Job begins to respond. Verses 1 through 8, Job is starting to get the idea. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. God is essentially saying, Okay, buddy, you're pointing my direction, saying that I'm doing something wrong. He who argues with me, let him answer. I have laid out part of my case. What do you have in response? Then Job, verse 3, answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job starting to get the picture. God continues, though, in verse 6. Then God answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you ever put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Again, God seeing Job's heart, seeing what's really going on, that Job is all about defending himself, and that is why he is questioning God. God turns it back on him. Will you ever put me in the wrong just to show that you are right? Obviously a rhetorical question. That's never going to happen. And God continues with his case in chapter 40 and 41 talking about these two creatures. And this is perhaps the most mysterious part of the book of Job, the behemoth and the Leviathan. Behemoth in chapter 40, the Leviathan in chapter 41. People have surmised, biblical scholars have surmised, and a lot have different answers as to what exactly these two creatures are. Some think that the behemoth is like the hippopotamus. Some think that the Leviathan is some sort of big sea creature, like a whale or something like that. But some have other explanations that the behemoth and the Leviathan are both creatures that existed before we came and came, came around. Like there was something primordial about these two and they, they represent everything that is like opposed to God in the world. Kind of the chaotic nature of the world. Either way, whatever it is, whether it's, it's beasts that are beyond human control or, or whether it's, it's God borrowing from some sort of like other beliefs around that area at the time to show symbolically that he is in charge of everything that is chaotic and everything that seems to be working against his creation. To me, it makes perfect sense and it fits perfectly well that these mysterious creatures would be at the end of the book and we would all be left scratching our head saying, what in the world are these things? Because that's kind of the point. That God has everything under control, even the things we don't even think about. Even the things we don't even start to think about. Even the things that we don't even think about thinking about. Like, But they're so far beyond us that there is no part of our brain that ever stops to think about those things. Creatures that we haven't even named because we don't even know they exist. God not only knows about them, has created them. He helps them survive. He knows what they eat. He knows how they digest food and turn it into energy. He knows whether it's blood or something else that pumps through their veins and gives them the ability to move through the water. He knows how all of that works. Every single bit of it. 
the center of the world and everything outside, like far beyond us that we can't see with an eye or with a telescope. God only knows that it exists. He knows the exact makeup of what, how much percentage of this is this gas and how much is this gas and how hot is it and how dense is it and how wide is it. God knows the answers to all of those things, things that we don't even know to ask about. God knows those answers. And he rests his case at the end of 41. At the end of showing Job that he has control over creation. He has control even what we don't even know to ask about. And Job finally begins, or finally does, see the truth in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. And this is his response. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. And therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job finally sees the truth. That line in verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job finally sees who God is after God has given this long explanation. Because when we know who God is, we can trust what he does even when we don't understand Now, it's important to note that God didn't really answer Job's questions. He didn't sign off on Job's innocence. He does speak those words to Job's friends in just a few moments. But in his response to Job's argument before Job repents, God doesn't give him like an excuse. God doesn't give him a a, a pardon where he can write off and say that I didn't do anything wrong. Nor does he answer the questions that most of us come to the book of Job with. Which is why the innocent suffer, why bad things happen to good people, why the wicked prosper. Questions that have been raised throughout the book. Now, in in the passage 38 through 41, God does briefly a couple of times mention how he will hold the wicked accountable and how he will bless the righteous. But there is no long descriptive answer of why God allows these things to happen. He doesn't answer the questions those way. Really, he just comes with a bunch of more questions. And through a series, again, of about 70 rhetorical questions, he tells Job who he is and what he has done. It's as if God is saying to Job, look, look at all I have done. Things that you haven't even stopped to think about. Yet you don't trust me. It would be much like with Corbin when he has something that might be causing him fear us looking him into the eye and again parents you do this you look him in the eye and say have like he, he's worried sometimes we joke about okay if you don't get ready we're going to go ahead and take off you know we're going to leave you here and, and then he'll he'll kind of break down I know we're terrible parents don't call CPS or anything but we don't actually do it we never do it and we remind him of that when he gets really afraid we'll look at him and we say we've never left you before do you really think that's going to happen now God doesn't play those tricks with us about leaving God is so far beyond us But it is kind of that same idea with God and Job, where God presenting himself to Job says, look at everything that I take care of. 
Every drop of rain that's pouring forth from the sky right now, I told it where to go. The snow that's coming later in the year, I have it in a storehouse waiting to fall. The lightning doesn't go anywhere unless I tell it to. And not one molecule of water is going to proceed past the limit I set for it on the shore, even at high tide. Not only that, but the constellations that God ships through the night, I put all of them exactly where they are. I have done all of that. Do you really think, Joe, that you can't trust me with your life, with what's going on in your world? Do you really think, Christian, that God has all of this in control, but your life is beyond his control? That your situation is is too bleak, too scary, too confusing? That it's beyond God's control? That you are the first thing in time, like ever, that's been outside of God's control? Of course, we don't actually think that, but it's a good reminder to remember who we are and who God is. And Job's new clarity of vision moves him to repentance. Repentance. It seems out of the blue a little bit, especially with what God said in the prologue in chapters 1 and 2, that Job was a righteous man. He was faultless in his ways. And then what God says here in chapter 42 in verses 7 through 9 when, when he goes and talks, when he shuts Job's friends down and says that Job spoke well of me. He commends Job. He judges his three friends. But he commends Job for speaking well of me. God says those words. So why would Job feel the need to repent? It's not because he had somehow greatly sinned against God. It is because he put his own understanding above God's. He defended himself to the point where he was more worried about his, him, him, his own self, his own self-finding justice, than he was in presenting God as just and good. I think, maybe at the heart of it, is the sin of pride that we like all have. Yes, that we all have. And that Job needed a good reminder that I need that I'm guessing you probably need occasionally. And that reminder is this, I'm not God. I know, elementary, simple, you know that, I know that, everybody knows that, kids in wiggle worms know that, they're not God. Yet, sometimes my actions say something differently. Sometimes I begin to orchestrate my future in my head without ever stopping to consider if that's what God wants, if that's what God wills. Sometimes when I feel like life is unfair or things are unjust, I I like Job question and wonder and think that I could do this better. That if I could just control A and B, then it would be what it needed to be and everything would be fine. Everything would be perfect. This pain would be gone. And this pain is useless. It should go without saying, but it doesn't. And so maybe for this week... Maybe every now and then, maybe when you get ready in the morning, maybe look at that person in the mirror and say, you are not God. I am not God. I'm going to submit to the one true God today and every day. To the one true God who who knit the molecules that are in the face that I'm looking at together in my mother's womb. I'm going to submit to that God. 
I'm going to submit to the God who, who sends, who, who enables my brain to send the electrical impulses down the nerves and into my face where I can have some sort of smile or expression. I'm going to submit to the God who created my heart in such a way where it pumps in rhythm that gives me the ability to sleep at night calmly and then wake up with energy when it's time to go. I'm going to submit to the God who put the oxygen in the air that I breathe that goes into my lungs and allows that blood to be filled with energy again so that my heart might pump it into my body. I'm going to submit to the God that knows all of the things that I don't even think to ask about. I'm going to submit to that God. And I'm going to trust him even when I don't understand. I am not God, but I know the one who is And because of that, I can trust and I can rest in comfort, just as Job did. The last words of the book, chapter 42, verses 12 through 17. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. That's more than he had before. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter, Jemima, and the name of the second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Kiran Hapuk. And in the land, there were no women as beautiful as Job's daughters. I hope so, because they had terrible names. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. A temptation at this point is to wipe away all of Job's suffering because everything went well at the end. That's not the point. The point is that God restores. God redeems. Suffering is still suffering. But in the end, God will take care. And when we know who God is, we can trust what God does, even when we don't understand. See, in our world, and there's a good part of me that has this sense of cynicism and skepticism as well. In our world, when we come to an issue like Job's or we come to the book of Job, we want to know every detail. And we want to think that everything makes sense and has a specific order because that's the way science works. Science gives us answers. At least that's what we think, even though science has its limits. And look, I'm not a science hater. I believe in the value of science. I believe that God created this physical world in the way that it exists. And we should use the brains that he gave us to understand it as well as we possibly can. Scientific understanding is a gift from God. It's like mathematical understanding. We shouldn't run away from those things. They are a beautiful part of God's creation. Yet they have their limits because they are based in human knowledge, not God's knowledge. They are based from our side of the conversation, not God's side of the conversation. And we want to know every detail. And we think that our world has this crisis of belief that centers around not having enough facts. That if we could just get some more facts. And look, I fall into this often. When someone comes to me, especially a non-believer, and they say, what about this? What about creation and the six days? Or, or what about Job and the way that things work there? Or what about these seeming inconsistencies in the stories of Jesus and the gospel or in the Bible? What do we do with all of those? And I think to myself, if I just give them enough facts, which that's good. I should give facts. We should know as much as we can. But I, I fall into the trap of thinking, if I just give enough facts, everything will make sense. 
Right? Anybody else in the house has that problem? Anybody else thinks that if you just have enough facts, everything else will make sense? I definitely fall into that category. But what God has shown me through this series, like in the last six weeks, what God has shown me through this series is that our world, our culture does not have a a knowledge problem. It has a relationship problem. We don't have a knowledge deficiency. We have a relationship deficiency. Because in Scripture, even for Job, when he finally saw who God really was, he stopped asking the questions. And he rested in the fact that he didn't have the knowledge, but God did. So he put his hand over his mouth. I've spoken and I will speak no more. And he repented in dust and ashes. He despised himself, Scripture says. Now, don't get it all 21st century, hate yourself kind of thing about that. But rather see that as in relation to God, seeing how small we are, yet he cares for us. And we trust him, even though we don't deserve it. And so I would love to go to the book of Job. We do the same thing with the book of Revelation, right? If we just turn it into all these facts and answers. I would love to go to these books and come away with a, a chart that showed you, okay, when this sort of suffering happens, here's what God is doing. And when this sort of suffering happens, here's what God is doing. And, and, and this formula right here shows why bad things happen to good people. And this one over here shows why good things happen to bad people. And if we just go along this chart, we'll understand it. We won't have any more questions. We just need to know enough and no more. I would love to bring that to you. But that's not the way God set everything up. And as I think about my future, as I think about my questions, and even though I long for the facts, if I quiet my heart and I quiet those questions, there is something more beautiful. Job uses that word. Something too beautiful for me, he says. There is something more beautiful about dwelling in the mystery and trusting God's ways The God that I know. And because I know this God, I can trust what he does, even if I don't understand. Because I know this God who sent his son to die on the cross for my sake, I can trust what he does, even when I don't understand. Don't take the shortcut. Don't think that we shouldn't work to understand, that we shouldn't ask questions, all of those things. God says that Job spoke well of him. There's nothing wrong with seeking and searching. But in the end, are we going to submit to God or are we going to rest on our own knowledge? That's what I take from the book of Job. Maybe you can as well. That when we know God, we can trust him, even when we don't understand. To know God and trust God. And to live in the peace and the beauty that that trust brings even in the midst of chaos, suffering, and mystery. As we enter into our time of invitation this morning, I encourage you to have a conversation with God. To go through maybe the process that Job did. Maybe there's something going on in your life. Maybe there's some sort of calamity that's moving you to a point where you have these questions on your heart. Or maybe, and I know this happens, there's nothing like seriously going wrong, but you're going through one of those, those seasons of life where you're just... Wondering about all these big questions like a five-year-old at night. This, how does this work? Just keep studying. But ask God to help you trust Him 
and to rest in that trust this morning. And if there's anybody here who has never trusted in Jesus as their Savior for the first time, and you're wondering how in the world you do that in this chaotic world, I would love to talk to you about that right here during our time of invitation or after the service. You can find me then as well. And let's stand together. You communicate with God where you're at. The altar is open. If you want to do it there, I can pray with you about this or anything else that is on your heart at this moment during our time of invitation. I'm going to pray. The band is going to lead us in a song of invitation. You move in whatever way God is telling you to. God, we thank you for your wisdom. God, we thank you for being beyond us. And God, while we work diligently to study your word, to study your world so that we can understand you better, God, help us to realize that our knowledge is human, that our knowledge is finite, and that we will come to impasses where it doesn't make sense. And God, when we come there, give us the reminder that we are not God, but you are, and we can trust you. God, thank you for having every detail figured out of things I don't even know to ask about. Help me to rest and trust in your faithfulness and in your goodness. I pray all those things in Jesus' name. Amen.